0: If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts 26, Acts 26, and we're doing a series on Explore Jesus and who Jesus really is and understanding who he really is. And there are lots of good reasons to believe in Jesus. You know, I'm, <clears throat> it's night 2015 and I was reflecting on 30 years ago because it's, this is about 30 years when this is being written from the time Christ has died from his death, burial, and resurrection. This is about 30 years roughly after that that we see this happening with the Apostle Paul who uh, arguably uh, was the most demonstrative, demonstrative and one of the most passionate religious individuals in the world at that time seeking to stomp out Christianity, to literally exterminate Christianity. And so he's going to give a dissertation. He's going to give a defense Of why he has been transformed. Now, I was thinking about 30 years ago. What was happening 30 years ago? Well, let's see. Reagan was president. George Bush Sr. was the vice president. It was also the year that Tina Turner came out with a song, What's Love Got to Do with It? That now we can't seem to get away from. Uh, New Coke, Coca Cola decided it wasn't enough to have uh, years, decades and decades of enormous success. They tried decided to change it and make it new Coke. And then they realized that was a colossal mistake, and they went back and called it classic Coke, old Coke. Uh, Also, uh, there were other things that were going on of great importance, like the Los Angeles Lakers had just defeated the Boston Celtics in a series of the NBA finals. Multiple things that were happening that if someone asked you about, many of you watched that game, many of you uh, watched the elections. Many of you were familiar with things that were going on. There were other things, world events that were going on as well. And many of you remember those times. And if somebody said, hey, that didn't really happen, you go, hey, I remember when I was sitting, where I was sitting when I heard that, or when I watched that, or when, maybe, I, maybe I was actually there. I remember the first time I drank new Coke. You know what I mean? You, you remember those. <clears throat> and so when we look at this text it's remarkably accurate because any of these things that the Apostle Paul is going to be saying could have been disproven. There were plenty of people around that could have said, hey, I was there. That didn't happen. That's not the way it occurred, just as you could. Some of you who are 40, 45, 50, maybe 55 plus, you remember a lot of these things from 30 years ago, don't you, as I do. And so that's the exact scenario that Paul is in as he's Preaching, as he's speaking, as he's giving a defense, and the remarkable thing about it is, is Paul, uh, and we don't know exactly the amount of time that transpired, but somewhere between a year and two years after Christ uh, is resurrected, uh, Paul, for the next year to two years, tries to stomp out Christianity because he's a Jew. And in fact, we'll see in this text that he is a strict Pharisee. He is a strong Jew. He is recognized. He's very well educated, he's very respected, very well thought of, and for him to change and to believe that Jesus Christ, that there was a man that was God in the flesh, was remarkable at least, and unbelievable, probably at best. But that's what happens with the Apostle Paul. And so it's quite remarkable when we stop and we look at it and we consider what happens in Paul's life. And why is that? Why is it that Jesus has so transformed those people around him, the apostle Paul, in all of history? If you go back and you ask any educated realist, they will tell you that Jesus was certainly one of the most Popular, most influential men in all of history. I think most scholars would; it would be a given, if they are completely objective. They would say Jesus transformed history more, he changed history, and in, impacted history more than any other individual that ever lived. I mean, you think of Alexander the Great. You think of Plato, Aristotle, Da Vinci. You think of Galileo, Christopher Columbus. We could go on and on and on. Buddha. Uh, you think of uh, Darwin. Uh, anybody you want to think of that made an impact in history in the way that we know it today, none of them compare to what Jesus has done, to the millions and millions of people who have given their lives to Christ and followed him, to the millions who have suffered and died for their faith and belief in Jesus Christ, for his teachings when you stop and think about it, you think about who Jesus was. He was a man born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village. He worked as a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He never set foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. And while he was still young, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends deserted him. He was turned over to the enemies. He went through through a mock trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. And while he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had. And when he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave. 19 centuries have come and gone. Today he is the central figure for much of human race. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned, put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as Jesus. Think about that. Think about that. I want to give you the five points right up front. I'll make it real simple for you today. Some of you think this is a time you can go home after you get them, but I'm going to give you the five points on why we should consider Jesus. Why Jesus? Why did Paul consider the life of Jesus to be so transformational, to so change his life? In five reasons. Number one, because of changed lives. We're going to see that. We see that happens to Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul witnessed changed lives. It's a reason that you ought to consider Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as your Savior. Number two, peace with God to come to a place that you're at peace with God, where you recognize that you're a sinner and you have had your sins forgiven because of what Jesus has done on the cross. The Bible teaches us, this is the gospel, that we're all much more sinful and we're all worse than we think. None of us are that good. We're not gonna earn our way. We're not gonna do some great deeds. 10 years from now, we're really probably not gonna be that better than we think we are right now. But the good news is that the gospel is this, is that we are more loved and welcomed by God's Holy Spirit for all who will call the name of Jesus, confess our sin, and receive the gift of salvation. That's the good news and the hope of the gospel. And when we do that, we are at peace with God. Does that mean we always have a peaceful, easy feeling, and I know he won't let me down? No, that's not what, that's not what it means. It means you are at peace for God. God is not against you. He is for you, that you are at peace From your point of salvation, spiritually, you have come to a place where you can put your hope and confidence in him that he has forgiven. You are at peace. Otherwise, we are against him. We are seeking to be the king of of our lives. We are seeking to rule our lives. When we come to the place where we say, Jesus, I believe. I believe you're more than enough. I believe you're the healer. I believe you're my king. I believe you're my savior. I put it in your hands. Not that I don't ever worry. Not that I don't have struggles. Not that I don't have problems in my life. But I know this in the end. Jesus, you win, and I'm on your side, and I have embraced you as my Savior. I am spiritually at peace for my eternity. Does that make sense? That's the peace. Sometimes people go, I feel kind of worried. Yeah, yeah, you're human. Thank you. But you are at peace once we trust Christ as our Lord and say, once we put our hope in him, we can be spiritually at peace for our salvation and for our relationship before God. Number three, prophecy. The prophecies are given. We'll just look at a couple this morning but the prophecies that were given in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that Jesus has fulfilled. You ought to consider because of the prophecies that have been fulfilled. The resurrection, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that the body was never found, that the claims that Jesus made actually came true. And then the miracles of Jesus as we we notice him turning the water to wine, as he walks upon the water, as he causes the lame to walk and the blind to see. And then number five, the impact that it's had upon the world. The impact that it's had upon the world of Paul's time and of our time today. Well, you know, if you think about it, uh, an author once made this comparison. He said, you know what? Plato taught for about roughly 50 years. Aristotle taught for 40 years. Socrates taught close, almost 40 years, and Jesus taught for three years. So if you go and you put all these other great men combined, it's 130 years of teaching, and nowhere near have they had the impact that Jesus has had. The influence of Christ's three-year ministry infinitely transcends and impacts the 130 years of teaching from these men who were considered the greatest philosophers of antiquity. Jesus painted no pictures. Yet some of the finest paintings in all the world by Raphael, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci received their inspiration from him. Jesus wrote no poetry, but Dante, Milton, and scores of others were inspired by him. Jesus composed no music, still, Handel, Beethoven, Bach, and Mendelssohn reached their highest perfection of melody and hymns and symphonies as they composed praises to and about Jesus. Every sphere of human greatness has been enriched by Jesus. Certainly Paul has come to this conclusion to the point that he will give this defense. He will be willing to share the gospel instead of trying to just get off from the charges that have been ledged against him that are false and bogus. Paul uses this opportunity because he's been called by God to share his faith. Let's see what the Apostle Paul says. Arguably, uh, certainly one of the most 20 influential men in all history as well. And let's see, what is it that transformed him? What is it that makes him so bold? And this, as he's standing before Agrippa, beginning in chapter 26, it says, So Agrippa, now remember who Agrippa is. You've got Festus, who is the governor at this time from Rome, but you've got Agrippa, who is kind of the vassal king over all of Palestine, most all of Palestine. Now, who is Agrippa? Well, let's remember this: Agrippa's his great grandfather was Herod the Great, who sought to what? To kill Jesus, had all the babies in Bethlehem murdered around the time of the birth of Jesus Christ. So that's Herod the Great. Then Herod the Great has a son, uh, the next Herod, and you know what this Herod does? He has John the Baptist beheaded. By the way, Paul is very aware of Agrippa's family. All right, everyone is. So his great-grandfather seeks to kill Jesus as a baby and massacres uh, scores of babies. Number two, we've got uh, Herod the Great, his grandfather, who uh, has John the Baptist beheaded, Jesus' cousin, the forerunner who's proclaiming that Jesus will come. Then his father has James, the first apostle that is killed and murdered, is done so by his father, Herod Agrippa the first, okay? There's not a good track record right here for the Agrippas and Christians, and there never will be, and there never is. Matter of fact, it ends here with Agrippa the second. Now you've got Agrippa the second, and Paul knows fully well who he's speaking to, who he's talking to. He's a Jew who's been loyal to Rome because it has been financially prudent to do so, because he's been able to keep the power that he has. It just as his father and his grandfather and his great father. And he wants to stomp out anything that threatens him. And then Paul said to Agrippa, Agrippa says to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. What has transpired is the Jews want to kill him. They want him to come back to Jerusalem. They want Agrippa and they want Festus to send him back to Jerusalem so that they can kill him because he's been speaking and teaching the gospel. And he's been not only teaching it to Jews who are converting, but also to Gentiles. And so they have asked for Paul to be sent back, and they want to kill him. There's a plot. But then Paul stretched out his hand, and he made his defense, apologia. This is the word we get for apologetics. Just like next week, we will teach apologetics. This is Paul giving his apologia, his apologetics. He said, I consider myself fortunate... That is to you, King Agrippa. Now, remember the history of King Agrippa, and he's saying, I consider myself fortunate. Why? Because he knows King Agrippa knows all the Jewish law. King Agrippa is an expert in Jewish law. Festus, uh, who's been the governor of the Roman, he doesn't understand all these charges. But he says, I'm going to make my apologia, my apologetics today against all the accusation of the Jews especially because you are familiar with the customs and the controversies of the Jews. These controversies that are going on, these claims of Jesus Christ that he's made, the the death, burial, and the resurrection, you're very aware of all these things. And therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. Everyone knows how I was raised. Everyone knows I, I, um, I studied under Gamal, who was regarded as probably the greatest teacher of that day for Judaism. Everybody knows my credentials. And he continues, and he says, and how among my own nation in Jerusalem, I'm known by the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to t- testify according to to the strictest party of religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. He is a devout, strict, highly conservative, fundamentalist Pharisee. This this is as conservative as as you can get. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope. Catch that word. Because of my hope. Now, that word is deeper and richer in the Greek than it is in the English. In the English, we go, I hope that happens. Hope the Cowboys eventually win a game. I, I hope the Rangers make the playoffs. That's kind of a weak. I just, you know, don't have a lot of confidence. Just hope it goes well. But this word in the Greek hope means confident expectation. I confidently expect this to happen. I confidently expect this to occur. And so he says, because of my confident expectation in the promise made by God to our fathers, God had promised a Messiah would come. He believed that. They believed that. To which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews of the king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Paul's laying out the case here. He goes, I'm here because of my hope, because I believe in the Scripture. I have confident expectation in what the Bible says and what the prophets said. And I'm here because of that. And I also believe and know that God has raised Jesus from the dead, just as Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And why do you think that's so incredible? Do you not believe that God could do anything? I myself, in verse 9, was convinced. I thought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he was a strict Pharisee, and the one thing that God could never be was a man. They wouldn't even speak the name God. They wouldn't speak the name Yahweh, much less would they have ever thought that the Son of God, that God could come in the flesh. And so this is tearing or exploding their paradigm. He continues here, and he says, I was opposing the name of Jesus Christ, and I did so in Jerusalem. And not, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but, when there was, but I was there when they were put to death, and I cast my vote against him, which means he was a part of the Sanhedrin, the high council who made the final decisions. And when he said, I cast my vote, the Sanhedrin, when they were uh, voting on something, particularly on uh, the accusation of someone who might be guilty or crime worthy of death or excommunication or prison, then the Sanhedrin would vote. And if they voted positively, it was a white rock, but if they put forth the black rock, it was the picture of guilty. And he's saying, I did this. And probably, uh, if we go back in the book of Acts, we see that when Stephen, the first martyr, that Paul, that they put the cloaks at his feet, Paul had passed the stone, uh, presumably... Of death, that Stephen was guilty, and he's probably making a reference to this: that I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in the synagogues, and tried to make them blaspheme. In other words, he got them tried to get them to renounce Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was a lie, and that he had not been uh, cr- that he had not been crucified, died, and raised again on the third day. They, they, he tried to get them to blaspheme the name of Jesus, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even in two foreign cities. It wasn't enough to just Jerusalem. I was going anywhere and everywhere I could to find them. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. In the midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me, those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying in Hebrew, which was probably Aramaic, which was the street language of Hebrew in that day. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, a goad was a sharp instrument that you would use to prod oxen. And, uh, and just, just the way, maybe sometimes people use sticks today, but they, that was the way that they kind of got the ox to go the way they wanted, or if it stopped, they'd take that sharp stick and they would goad him. But this is also a proverbial expression that was widely understood and widely known during that time. And this expression meant this, that you are seeking to work against the will of the gods. Okay, It was a proverbial string, or against God. So it was a common expression that would be used in their vernacular at that time, to kick against the goat. You can't deny what God wants. And that's exactly what he's saying right here. God is speaking in his language. You are working against me. And I said... Who are you, Lord? I recognize, he recognizes who he is, that he is the Lord. And the Lord said, I am Jesus. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to point you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those which I will appear to you. I want you to be a witness. You are here to give an account for the hope that was, is within you and for what I shall share with you, delivering you from our people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Now, this is remarkable. Certainly, Gentiles have heard the message, and certainly that when God selected or elected the nation of Israel to be his people, they were to be a light to the Gentiles. This was from the beginning. That's how others were to know of the greatness of Yahweh God. But as often happens, that had become very, intra, uh, just b- very intrafocused, very uh, locked in to say, hey, this is my group. Uh, so to speak, you might even say it had become kind of clickish. The, the Jews began to see themselves as the holy ones, and then there was everyone else. But that's not the way it was supposed to have been, and God is now saying, I'm going to send you to not only Jews, but to the Gentiles to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among them who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. When God spoke, I have been obedient to what God has said. But I declared first to those in Damascus, and then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should do what? Here it is. what it's got Paul calling them to do? Number one, to repent. We talked about that last week. Uh, to go the right directions, to recognize what the truth is, and to go the right direction, the Bible says. perform And, and the Bible says to repent and turn to God. Repent and turn to God. Recognize I, you've been working against him. Recognize you've been going your own way, but that Jesus has come, and that he has died on behalf of your sins, that he has rose, and that he is God, he was God in the flesh, and that he sits at the right hand of the Father today, interceding on behalf. Turn to God and perform deeds in keeping with repentance. Repent, turn to God, and live by the deeds of your repentance. And for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. This is why they have sought to kill me. Because I have I have gone back and I have recognized that God has sent Jesus, that it is true. I've seen the lives that have been transformed. I know the prophecies. I see what He has done. God has spoken to me, I know this to be true. And to this day I have the Bible says I had the help that comes from God so that I stand to testify both to small and great, saying nothing, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said, "Would come to pass." Again, we see the prophecy that Christ must suffer. If you went back to Psalm twenty-two, you would see the, the the Psalm of the Suffering Servant. And then, by that, by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. You could go back to Isaiah, and we can see the prophecies in Isaiah where Jesus alludes, or where, excuse me, where the prophet Isaiah alludes to the coming Messiah. And the one who will come. And the Bible continues, it says in verse 24. And he said, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Matter of fact, he literally says, Paul, you're a nut. Now, this is Festus. He's the Roman governor. He doesn't know all this. He hasn't been living here. He's come to Jerusalem, he's heard the stories. He's fascinated by it. He's brought Agrippa in, who's the king uh, over the Palestine, but under the subject of the Roman Empire. And he, he knows Jewish history. He knows what's happened in that area. But Festus is saying, you are crazy. I mean, you're, you said you're happy except for these chains that are on your hands. You're saying that God has raised people from the dead. You said and you had a heavenly vision Uh, You seem more concerned about the gospel than your own defense. You keep preaching to us, and you have this message of hope. You've studied way too much. You're a nut job. That's what he's saying. And the Bible says, as he continues here, he says, but Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. These are things of reason that can be proven. He continues here. And he says, for the king, King Agrippa, he's been here. He's been here in Palestine. He knows what's going on. He's been about these things. And to him, him I speak boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. Everyone knows what's happened in Jerusalem. Everyone knows what's happened with Jesus. They cannot find the body. And there are scores of people who have come to faith There are scores of people who are willing to die for their faith. We've imprisoned them, and yet they continue to grow and multiply. And there's something different about them. He says these things have not been done in a corner, they've been done in public. The king knows it. And not only that, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? You know the prophecies. King Agrippa. You know that in Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us this child is to be born, is to be given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall call him his name, Emmanuel. Larry King one time was asked a question. He said, If you could meet anybody in all of history, who would you want to meet? And Larry King said, who's a a Jew? He's basically a secular Jew, a Jewish agnostic. He said, you know, if I could meet anybody, I'd want to meet Jesus Christ. And he said, well, what would you ask him? I would ask him, were you really virgin born? Were you really the son of God? I would want to ask him that. They said, why? Because if that's true, it changes everything. And you're right, it does change everything. We have to come to the reality whether we believe it's truth or not. One more prophecy, Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come the one who is to be the ruler in Israel. Herod knew this. His grand great-grandfather knew this. Whose coming forth is from the old and from the ancient days. In other words, it's already preexistent. Herod had known that, and now Agrippa knows that. You know the prophecies, Agrippa. You know the prophets. I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, "In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian?" Agrippa's in a situation where he knows everything that Paul said is true. It can be; it's verified by not just logic, but by history, by prophecy. He's biblically astute. He's biblically correct, and he's culturally. He's uh, from a cultural standpoint. He's been correct about the things that have been going on around. So he knows. And so what does Agrippa do at this point? He has one of two decisions. He can say, yeah, that's right, which indicts him. Hey, these are the promises that have been made. These are the prophecies that have been given. And you know Jesus is fulfilling these. But what does he say? Hey, I'm right here next to Festus. You know I'm the king right here. And you know this is a good deal for me. And I've got the Jews over here. And I've got the most prominent people in Caesarea here. He goes, do you think you're going to persuade me in a very short period of time? basically saying, I know what you said is true, but you think you're going get, to get me to just make this decision right now? And Agrippa said to him, can you think you can persuade me to be a Christian in that short? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all those hear me this day might come to such as I am, except for these change. It, it's remarkable, because if you went back to 915, Acts 915, it was prophesied that that Paul would stand before the kings. He, he's told, Look, you will be before the kings. You will get, you'll be before the officials. You will be before those who are in power. And, matter of fact, we also see it prophesied that you will go to Rome. That's exactly where he's going to go. This is all fulfillment of prophecy. And so, in verse 30, then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, who is the king's sister. And anyway, we keep going, and those who were sitting with them, and these are all the leaders of this community as well as the king and the governor, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man has done nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. Everything he said is true. Everything he said is correct. Now, Festus, I know you didn't hear everything. You weren't around, but all the stuff he's saying, those are actual events. Those things happened he doesn't deserve death, certainly, certainly not death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So he had appealed to Caesar. It was like appealing to the highest court. And even though Festus has the power to say, hey, we can just let him go, they don't want to. There's a strong contingency of Jews that are seeking to kill him and who are opposed to him. And so he said, all right, You're going to head to Caesar, which again fulfills the prophecy given earlier in Acts 19, that the Holy Spirit would lead him to Rome. Paul knew this. None of this is by accident. It's remarkable. It's amazing. This is why, as you see this discourse, as you see this apologetic defense, this is why we see Paul so believed so strongly in Jesus Christ. This is why it changed his life forever. So the question we have to ask today, what difference does Jesus make in our lives? What difference does he make in your life today? What difference has he made? Have you allowed and made? Number one, has he changed your life? As we look around, we, we worship together with multiple people whose lives are changed. I'm not just talking about those from history. I'm talking about those today. Number two, peace with God, that God is offering an opportunity for us to be at peace with him, to quit trying to be our own God, to try to be the king of our own life, and to recognize Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We've, we've talked about prophecies, both from the Old Testament and the New Testament. Those aren't by coincidence. Those are true. Those are facts. The resurrection of Jesus, the miracle of Jesus. There were people who saw him walk on water. There were people who saw him change the water to wine. There were people who saw him heal the blind and heal the lame. And the Bible says after he died, there were over 500 people that witnessed him alive after his resurrection, according to 1 Corinthians 15. His life was certainly enriched. His life certainly made a difference. The question we have to ask is what difference does it make to us today? The impact upon the world. You know, his life impacted children. In a culture where they would leave children, particularly young girls, out for exposure because that's not what they wanted or because they couldn't afford to feed them, Christians were encouraged to take them in. And we started to see adoptions and and orphanages begin to In a world where humility was not known by leaders, Jesus was washing the feet of his followers. He didn't demand respect, he lived respect. And in a culture where forgiveness was unheard of, his whole life was about forgiveness. Joshua Bell, who is one of the most renowned violinists in in America today, did a study one time, uh, or he was part of a study, He had just been performing for sold-out crowds at the Boston Symphony Orchestra. had come to Washington, D.C. to do the same. His shows were all sold out starting at $100 a ticket. But he went out and put on a a Washington Nationals baseball cap, had his hair kind of unkempt, put on jeans and an old T-shirt, and he picked up his violin at a busy subway, and he began to play. And he played for 45 minutes as literally thousands and thousands of people walked by and they counted in that almost 45 minutes to an hour that only 27 people even stopped. A couple of them threw a couple of dollars in. Matter of fact, at the end of the, end of the time, he had about $30. And remember, one ticket would be $100 that night. <clears throat> and they all just walked by. No one ever recognized him or noticed. No one re- recognized that he was holding a $3 million Stradivarius violin. The gre- probably the greatest violinist in the United States with the most magnificent violin probably in the United States. He's playing that, and no one notices. A couple people throw a dollar in and think that's nice. So let's help this poor boy out. must be a starving musician. They didn't realize the magnitude of what was before them. They didn't realize who he really was, that he was the master musician, that many of them couldn't even get in to hear him. But here he was on the street playing the same songs he would play before a sold-out crowd, sold-out crowds all week. But they missed it. Hey, don't you miss Jesus. Don't you miss the real thing. I remember when I was in college, there was a guy that came to my town. His name was Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. He actually grew up here in Texas. Matter of fact, he was pastor over here in a little church in Ennis, Texas for a good while and then went to a big church over in Southern California. But Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge, he got up and he began to preach. And I'd never heard preaching like that before. I was so inspired and I was so moved by what he said. And at the end, he did this, man, he just went on this rant about who Jesus was. And at the end of it, man, I'm, I'm standing up and I'm just going, that's my Jesus that's my king, that's who I serve. I wish he could be here. He died back in 2000. If I could have him, I'd have him here right now, okay? But I want you to hear those last few words because I so believe that's the truth. And if you can hear this and just walk by and be unmoved, you need to go back and check your salvation, okay? It's like like Josh Bell sitting there playing the violin. We're going, it's nice. Jesus was God. He is God. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He has transformed the world that you live in. We are here today because of Him. Because He lived the life that you should have lived and He died the death that you should have died. He's changed the course of humanity and history. And literally millions and millions of people have given their life, even Bono from U2 said, you know what? As I look at Jesus and I see what he's done, he said, I can't say he's a great teacher because I look over the course of history and the millions of lives that have been transformed and I have to make the decision, either he is Lord or he's simply a crazy man. Exactly what C.S. Lewis said over over 75 years ago. The question is, is Jesus your king? Father in heaven, we thank you the king of the universe, came to live the life that we should have lived and died a death that we should have died. Lord, he who knew no sin became sin that we might be able to become the righteousness of God. So, Lord, we praise you. We thank you. Lord, if there's one here that doesn't know you, I pray that you would draw them by the power of your spirit this day that they would come to that place where they say, Jesus, I recognize, I've been trying to run my own life, but Lord, I recognize you are the king. Become the king, become the savior of my life. I commit my life to you. Lord, thank you so much for this precious time. And Lord, I pray for for followers of Christ, for believers, Lord, that we would step up and recognize there's good reason to believe, there's good reason to share the hope that's within us. Lord, we thank you changing our lives, for giving us a future and hope that cannot be taken away. We give you praise and glory in your name. Amen. In front of your seats, there's a yellow card. And uh, Your visitor, please pull that out and fill that out with as much information as you're comfortable. If you're a member or a visitor, you'd say, hey, I'm ready to take a step with God. I'm ready to be baptized. I need prayer. <clears throat> Write that prayer request on there. I have a question. Whatever God is leading you to do, I want to encourage you to take that step this morning. And then after that, we're going to receive our offering. We're going to have one verse of this song, and then we're going to receive our offering. And as we receive that, we invite you to give as an act of worship. It's a way that we show who our King is as we worship, as we give unto Him.